if you're looking for a melody in life that might guide your way forward, then these verses today that were just read might be a good place to start. The way uh, that you read them, Jody, reminded me of a jazz piece where you've got the melody and then you improvise on it over and over again. You find your way through it. As I start this morning, and we're just going to focus on this one little bit from the book of Philippians, I want to challenge everybody. If you don't know this set of verses by heart, and the art of memorizing Scripture is lost to, to time and tradition and to hurry and other obligations, but if you're the kind of person that does memorize, this is one of those sections you should memorize. And if you don't, then you should print it or you should write it over and over again and place it somewhere in your life so that you would see it all the time. So that as you live your life, it might become that kind of improvisation on the themes. We're toward the end of the letter in uh, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And I'm recognizing that Paul and his letters did not have, this is not like a big shocking revelation, took me years in seminary to figure out, did not have a computer to write these things down. These were written by hand, either by himself or by uh, an assistant. And if you've written a letter by hand anytime recently, you know that say you set out to write a one-page letter, you might spend three-fourths of it talking about that new recipe that just changed your life and then realize that you have like three inches left to tell the person how much you love them, how much you've missed them, everything that needs to be said. And it almost feels in this end of the letter to the church in Philippi like that's what's happened. Paul has said a lot of things, but as we get to the end, he begins to shove these grand ideas together in just a few sentences. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in all things, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And then the peace of God, which transcends or surpasses everything that your mind could grasp, will guard and set up a stronghold around your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. There is a lot happening here. This morning we're going to talk about anxiety because we are an anxious people. We being Spring Creek, sure, we being alive and breathing is to be anxious these days. If you are not in your core more anxious than not, please come talk to me after the service so that you would share with me your journey. Uh, we're trying to be faithful people, and maybe you think that the opposite of faith is doubt. It is not. Doubt and faith are kissing cousins, as we like to say in Mississippi. Uh, <laughs> the opposite of faith is fear and anxiety. And if we're trying to be a faithful people, then we've got to figure out what to do with this unrest or this monkey mind, the worry or anxiety that might plague us. So this morning, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> Yesterday, I uh, had a birthday party with uh, Judah, had a friend who had a birthday party, and this was at what's called Main Event up on Memorial, and I realized after walking around <laughs> that I, I was feeling very anxious. Uh, 
And I'd been thinking about this sermon for quite a while. And it made me sort of take sock and repeat all of those verses in my own head as I was standing there in the noise. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having fun, and the place is fun. Although in some ways, a place like Chuck E. Cheese or Main Event, it seems like an opportunity for kids to learn the anxiety of capitalism with all of the tickets that you have to win and the little bit of money that you have and how little your reward is for how great the effort is. I mean, it's unbelievable how much money it costs to get a $3 stuffed animal that your parents are for sure going to burn and bury in the backyard (laughs) after a day or two. Uh, But I found myself in the midst of all of this noise and and hustle and rush and energy a little bit anxious or, or stressed and it made me wonder, well, it, it felt just like all of life. I mean, there, there was TVs everywhere playing all kinds of different things. There was a big bar uh, in one section. There were kids eating tons of food, and there were games. There were people climbing overhead, and there's a laser tag. I mean, it is unreal, and yet it's a perfect little uh, ecosystem of maybe our world. You could say that anxiety is the animating spirit of our age. Lots of of important thinkers and writers, philosophers, uh, sociologists, and preachers have talked about anxiety as the animating spirit of our age. My favorite author, one of them, and uh, one of my heroes is a the late rabbi named Ed Friedman, who wrote about family systems as a way of understanding both uh, congregations and synagogues and families. And he says that our age is marked by what we call chronic anxiety. And it pervades everything. And it makes it hard for anyone to act or to make any kind of solid, stable, in-one-place kind of decision because we are always living from this state of chronic anxiety. I don't want to spend 20 minutes talking about how you're anxious, though, because that's just going to remind you, and that's not helpful. There's a great podcast I listen to called Death, Sex, and Money, and uh, how many people just felt anxious (laughs) because the slide's up? Yeah, it's probably the middle word because it's church, but it's all the words, and it's everything that they bring up. The the idea, the premise of the podcast is that um, there are certain things that are just off-limits to talk about at the dinner table or when you're with mixed company, because they bring up a lot of anxieties. And so these are the three topics that this podcast, this radio show, tackle each week uh, in sort of a deep dive, a very intimate way to talk about those things that we hold most dear, the places where we would express our deepest vulnerabilities, and figure out a way to have a conversation around them. And, And for me, in different ways, anxiety pervades all of these kinds of things because there is within each of these a deep, deep unknown. Death is this thing that's sort of promised but out in the future, and I don't know when my time's going to be, and you don't really know when your time's going to be either. It's not even so much when you get the bad diagnosis that you know you're going to suffer. We are, we are built to suffer. It's the unknown of how much and of when it will end and of where it will lead that, that makes us anxious. And, well... Ask any couple about sex, 
and what it means to be so vulnerable or what it means to seek out love and not sure if it will be returned to you. And you start to get a sense of what it means to be anxious in modern marriage, for instance. There is an entire cottage industry of books that can solve the middle idea. And money. Money, money, money. Maybe it's in your own life because you've lived 60, 70 years and you know that you are not going to be working to bring in the paycheck, but you're not quite sure if the amount you've saved is going to be enough to last you until that first word comes to bear on your life. And so if you prepared enough for it and there's, there's that bit of it, or maybe it's nothing to do with your money. Maybe it's to do with your kids' money because they haven't figured out their lives yet. And so your money is still going into your, right? Or, or, or if you're the preacher, it's the church's money. So this is what it looks like for me. I'll just be transparent for a second. Um, this, is the, this is the main office little resource room over here where the copy machine is, and this is my mailbox. And I try and check my mail often, but most of the mail that comes into the church ends up in my mailbox. So it's always full. But every Monday at around 11 or 12 o'clock, uh, the folks who come to count, Eileen and uh, Tina mostly, and then whoever else can come in and help, will slip into my box and then the rest of the staff a little summary sheet on Mondays of everything that's come into the church on Sunday. And as a pastor, this can be one of the most anxious times of the week. I have to be really careful when I go into that box and I pull out the piece of paper and read it because I have meetings all day Monday where it's not good to go in as the preacher and be an anxious mess. And so I uh, approach this task. I've had to, and it's become a practice of of non-anxious seeing. There are good weeks and there are bad weeks. I was talking with the elders recently because we're in the middle of budgeting. And each year we find ourselves in a different place in the budget cycle when we step around to budget for the next year. But I have found that whatever kind of anxieties we carry about money in our own personal lives, it, it sort of is hard to not carry them into those budget meetings too. And to think, well, I know that in my own life, things have gotten tight. And it seems like also in the church's life, things have gotten tight. And and I'm concerned about whether I'm going to be able to do these things for my family that I could do last year. And I'm also really concerned if the church is going to be able to do the things that they did. And then we sort of find ourselves whipped up into the spirit of the age, which holds our lives captive. And then it can also hold a, a board meeting captive. And even the church. When Paul says in the opening of these verses, rejoice in the Lord always, I say it again, rejoice. It's twice that we are given a command, and it's the same one, so we should pay attention to it. Be thankful. Have a heart of gratitude. It's the first thing Paul says actually in the whole letter when he says to to the church, grace to you and peace. It's the same word for rejoice and grace there, charis. And so when I walk into that room on Mondays, and I, and I get ready to look and see what's, what's going to support the ministries of this church for the next week and month and year and into the future, before I open it, I say thanks. Because if there is a three-digit, a four-digit, a five-digit number on that piece of paper, it means that someone in this room, multiple people in this room, gave something. 
that they chose against anxiety and toward trust, and they gave something. And so I've stopped asking, well, where is the, the difference to make up what we need? I, I've only said thanks for months now about what comes in. And it has, it has become, for me, a kind of guard for my own heart and my own mind and my own energies about what it is I'm doing day to day here. Because who by worrying can add a day to your life or who by worrying could add a penny to the offering plate? That's not how this works. In fact, it's, it's the exact opposite. Everyone save those of us who have moved into deep levels of faithfulness, can find a reason right now to be anxious. Globally, nationally, locally, politically, socially, there are reasons to be anxious. I do not need to spell them out for you. I do not need to name names or circumstances. It's just the way it is. And with this kind of uncertainty in the world, Anxiety pervades, and when anxiety is present, the ability to trust begins to evaporate, and everybody starts to hold on to what they can secure, because you're just not sure what tomorrow is going to be like. This makes it very hard to trust in God. This is what the verse looks like. When I said there's a lot happening here, there's a lot happening here. To rejoice and rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Let it shine like stars, you could say. And then this weird line jammed in the middle of all of these requests and commands. The Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. So don't be anxious. But let your request be made known to God with prayer and petition and thanksgiving, and the peace of God will be yours. Paul is not making up this set of ideas that all hold together. Paul is, is quoting Jesus, who is the reflection and manifestation of, of God, who is giving us not a suggestion about how we should live our lives. Listen, if you're not happy with the way your life is going, I've got an idea for you. Try it on for size. See if you like it. If not, toss it aside. Let's try not to be anxious for a little bit. Let's just try that out. If it doesn't work, then you can move on. That's not actually what's happening here. This is a, this is a command. It is an imperative. If you have a Bible and you want to turn to Matthew's gospel uh, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Paul is riffing on Jesus. Improvising, you could say, on a theme. It's in chapter 6. As you read, you should also be aware of what's happening right above the section from Jesus' sermon. So it says in uh, verse 25, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, about what you'll eat or drink, or about your body. What you'll wear is life, not more than food, and the body not more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away for barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you more valuable than they are? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And a little bit further down, it says, If God clothes the grass of the fields in such splendor, which is here today and tomorrow thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? There it is. Right above that. In verse 19, it says, Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moths 
and vermin will destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up yourselves treasures in heaven. All right, turn to Luke's gospel. Another sermon. Same idea. We're in, verse, we're in chapter 12. Jesus says to his disciples in verse 22, do, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or your body, what you'll wear. Life's not more than food and the body's more than clothes. Consider the ravens this time. They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. Again, who of you of worrying could add a single hour to your life? And since you can't do this little thing, why would you worry about the rest? And then he talks about wildflowers and their beauty and says again, don't set your heart on the things you'll eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan runs after all these things. Your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid Little flock, for your father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Right above the section in Luke's gospel is a parable of the rich fool. Does anyone remember the story of the rich fool? What happens? Poor rich guys in Luke's gospel. They cannot catch a break. The story is preceded by this uh, this guy who comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, I've got a problem. I've got a problem. Tell my brother to, invi- to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus says to him, Man, who appointed me to be judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then tells this story. This story becomes the image of anxiety. It should sound familiar to any of us who are well-versed in the Scriptures, particularly the Old Testament stories, and like I have to say every week because I'm contractually obligated, the book of Exodus. <laughs> Always goes back to Exodus. It says that there was a certain rich man who had a, an abundance of harvest that came in, but he had a problem because he didn't have any place to put it. He had small barns and small storehouses. So he decided, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to prepare for the future because you never know when a famine's going to show up. And so he goes and he builds larger barns and larger storehouses, and he piles all of the extra into there so that he has a sure and secure future. And then it says to him, I can now take it easy eat, drink, and be merry because I've got plenty of grain laid up for myself for years. I can now retire and never have to worry about the stock market, never have to worry about global instability. I don't have to worry about my food rotting or anyone coming to steal it. I've got myself figured out. And then God says to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself. This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. The rich man's folly, his mistake is that he is unable, he's unable to live in the presence with peace and trust and faith without throwing out into the future some kind of assurance that he will be okay. So the only way to be present in the moment is to make sure that tomorrow has been taken care of. Not by God, but by him. In my reading this week, there's a book that came out in the 50s called The Wisdom of Insecurity. 
by the philosopher Alan Bataan. I want to read for you a section that this quote is pulled from because he gets at, I think, quite well um, what this age of anxiety might look like and what it's doing to us and how it pulls us out of where we are and throws us into another place where we are not, into the unknown or into the chaos. There is a contradiction in wanting to be perfectly secure in a universe whose very nature is momentariness and fluidity. But the contradiction, it lies a little deeper than the mere conflict between the desire for security and the fact of change. If you want to be secure, that is, protected from the flux of life, I'm wanting to be separate from life. Again, let let me say this one more time. If I want to be secure, that is, protected from the changes, the flux of life, then I'm wanting to be separate from life. Yet this is the very sense of separateness which makes me feel insecure. To be unable to be present in a moment is insecurity or anxiety. To be secure means to isolate and fortify the self, the I, the me. But it is just the feeling of being the isolated self which makes it feel lonely and afraid. In other words, the more security I get, the more I want. To put it more plainly still, The desire for security and the feeling of insecurity are the same thing. To hold your breath is to lose your breath. A society based on the quest for security is nothing but a breath retention contest in which everyone is as taut as a drum and as purple as a beat. A society based on the quest for security is nothing but a breath retention contest in which everyone is as taut as a drum and as purple as a beat. As a beat. You could say it this way a church based on the quest for security is nothing but a breath retention contest, in which everyone is as taut as a drum and as purple as a beat. As taut as a drum and as purple as a beat, that feels like the world that we live in. And then this, the real reason why human life can be so utterly exasperating and frustrating is not because there are facts called death or pain or fear or hunger. The madness of the thing is that when such facts are present, we circle, we buzz, we wiggle, we whirl to try to get the eye out of the experience. Yes, there's going to be suffering. Yes, there's going to be pain. But I don't want to do that. So if I could just take a step over here and let that happen, if I can leave reality, leave this present moment, we pretend that we are amoebas and try to protect ourselves by splitting life into sanity, wholeness, peace, trust, faith, lie in the realization that we are not divided, that man and his present experiences are one, and that there is no separate me that can be found And lastly, to understand music, you must listen to it. This is often how we think about time, that we are here and time is moving out in front of us. And so while we're inhabiting the moment that we have, we're also thinking about um, what's for lunch, right? Or what is waiting on our planner for Monday morning or that unaddressed relationship or or forgiveness or whatever it is that you have to do later. But you are here right now. You are here right now. You are not somewhere else. There is no other reality than one in which you are inhabiting at this moment. The future is not yet here. 
And just because you think it into existence does not mean that it is yet. Your body, your soul, your senses, your cognition, your loves, your hates, your everything is here with us right now. But that is a hard place to live. Because a lot of us, especially when we find ourselves in worry and anxiety, are somewhere else out into this future in our minds. We are here, but we are not quite here. So we build storehouses and bigger barns, and we plan, and we prepare, and we hedge, and we worry, and we turn into hypochondriacs, and on and on. This is anxiety. It is being in a moment and projecting out into the future all of the fears and insecurities of living in a world that changes and is unpredictable. But the reality is that you are here and the future has not yet happened. And the challenge then is to be here in this moment and then to welcome the next and then the next with open arms where you find yourself. And here's the reason that we can do this. It's that little bit that's shoved right in the middle of these verses. This is, this is how Paul says it in the Greek. Hakurios egos. Or uh, it's this. The Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. So if, if we are here, if we are inhabiting this present moment, and all of our fears and anxieties and worries are, are, are out here in this unknown future, then the reason that we can rejoice and hope, the reason that we could expect and demand peace from God is that the Lord stands right in between those things as a hedge. Now often, in religion, the anxiety comes from the inability to pull God into our present experience. It's why when we pray and pray and nothing happens, it can feel like such a letdown. Or when we do our best to behave ourselves and yet nothing in our life changes for the better, it seems as though God is somewhere else. So we spend an inordinate amount of time and energy trying to lasso God from wherever God is and yank God into the present. And Paul says at the start, rejoice Always rejoice and be gentle, even to yourself, because the Lord is not somewhere else. The Lord is near. So don't be anxious. I'm not sure what the next thing is or the next thing is. I don't know what tomorrow holds and neither do you. But God is already here. There's this uh, image that I've had in my mind all week. Uh, and it is ever present throughout Scripture, but it comes to me afresh and anew all of the time. And it's the image of the river. I won't go through all of Scripture where we see this river at play, but suffice it to say, 
and it's where the sermon title comes from, You Cannot Push This River. There's this story in the book of Ezekiel, which is the last of the major prophets. And the book of Ezekiel is when everything has fallen apart. So all has gone wrong, and every bit of betrayal that the people are going to do has happened. And so God's spirit leaves the temple. It's the most tragic of sections of the Old Testament, where the writer describes God's presence leaving the temple in stages and leaving their presence altogether so that they cannot say with any assurance the phrase, the Lord is near, because it seems like everything that's happened has made the Lord quite far away. So the rest of the book is dealing with that reality. And then toward the end of the book, the Lord's presence shows back up in this reversal of the way that it left, and God settles back among the people. But then there's this one section. It happens in chapter 47, the book of Ezekiel, where the man is brought back to the entrance of the temple and is standing there and notices coming out of the threshold of the temple this small trickle of water. It's like a puddle. And he's looking to figure out what's happening and where it's going and so follows it and walks out about a thousand paces and finds that this puddle that just was getting the bottom of his feet wet is now up to to his ankles. And so walks out another thousand and realizes after that that the water has come up to to his knee and then another thousand and then the water is at his waist. And if you know anything about moving water, this is becoming quite dangerous. You don't need a lot of flowing water to drown. And then goes out another thousand, and the water is now well over his head, and he cannot cross, it says. Then he led me back to the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. The water flows from the eastern region and goes down to the Arava where it enters the Dead Sea. And when it empties into the sea, the water there that was once salty and dead becomes alive, swarming with life. And then this line, where the river flows, everything will live. And what the man who's been standing in the puddle and then standing waist deep and then floating in the river has to do is accept that he is already in the flow of God. There is no escaping the river, and there is no drowning in it, but just to be in it, to find yourself in the flow. Now, so much of life, my life, and I'm sure your life too, is just made and baked into the struggle of trying to push the river, of trying to make demands on where God might be leading us and where we might find a sure footing. But what if the governing reality of our life is that God is already near. Paul is in prison when he is writing. He's in the midst of suffering and for sure going to die at some point because of this over and over preaching of the gospel. And when he says to them, rejoice, do not be anxious, it is in the midst of a deep current. And Paul has decided that it is not to be found in escaping this current that is carrying him, but he simply falls in. And death and pain and suffering take on new meaning when God is near. There is no moment but this moment. 
There is no other place that you can be but where you are right now. And if you are waiting for some other blessed day or time or place where God might be made known to you, then then you are chasing a phantom. God is near. God is at hand. The writer James says it this way, says, The coming of the Lord is at hand, and everything you've been waiting for is at your door. So establish your hearts. Make them firm. Do not be blown by the winds or the ground that shakes. Do not be afraid of the river or the flow or where it may take you. I asked Jody if he would read the passage today in a way that was reflective and devotional. And I asked asked Charles if he would come up toward the end of this sermon as someone whose practices and has built an entire life and vocation off of helping people be present to their lives and their experiences. To integrate everything that this world pulls apart. I asked Charles if he would lead us in just a short practice of being present, both to God and to ourselves. It's one thing to talk about anxiety and to talk about peace. It's another thing to sit with it. So we're going to try and sit with it for just a few minutes. I would ask if Charles would please come up and help us to enter into a little bit deeper the presence of God. And then after that, we'll sing a little bit more together. Charles. Good morning. This will be relatively painless, don't worry. Don't be anxious about not being anxious. One of my new favorite authors, real quick, to frame this a bit, because I, I, I want to riff on something that was shared, uh, has to, um, it comes from Brother David Steindl Rost, and he is an Austrian-based Benedictine monk who has spent time in, in a hermitage, sign me up someday, uh, but he also travels around the world and takes these realizations that people do have in contemplation and in silence and brings them to other people around the world and has talks about how to bring more peace into your life, etc. He wrote a book called The Music of Silence, and uh, I won't go into that, but this quote comes from that. Uh, a background, the word affluent means to flow towards, like a river, or to overflow, so an abundance, we might say. The quote goes, our affluent society stays affluent by making the containers bigger when they are just about to overflow, like a fountain with its lovely veils of water spilling over. The economics of affluence demand that things that were special for us last year must now be taken for granted. So the container gets bigger and the joy of overflowing gratefulness is taken away from us. But if we make the vessel smaller and smaller by truly reducing our needs, then the overflowing comes sooner, and with it the joy of gratefulness, we receive that gift. Some of you already know this. I'm learning it. The less you have, the more you appreciate what you've got. When your needs are limited, your vessel is easily filled, and you can delight in the overflow. Will you pray with me? God, we are truly grateful for the opportunity to be here. 
No matter what's going on in our lives, facing the imminent death of a loved one, the uncertainty of addiction, the uncertainty of a new venture, the pain and suffering of so many people that some of us are called to look directly into. And for all the joys, Lord, we don't just pray because we're hurt. We pray from a grateful, overflowing, affluent heart. What you've created is good, and we are your creation. Take us back if we have strayed. Remind us of the gift of the breath of life which we are experiencing now, which we trust we'll continue to experience when we go to sleep at night, falling into a kind of trust, a form of death, and we awaken again in the morning with our first breath, and we are inspired. As you breathe in, focus on the coolness that you experience on the in-breath. Lord, this is the coolness of your peace. And as you breathe out, focus on the warmth of your breath. This is the love of God, which even in death creates new life. The expiration and the inspiration both are required to keep us alive. Let go of the past, your regrets, your woulda, coulda, shouldas, your glory days. Let go of the future, the anxieties, which is worry about worry, your hopes, your dreams. And come to this present moment, which, as was said, this is the only place we can truly be alive. The only place to hear the sound of your quiet voice, God. The only place we can come face to face with your overwhelming grace. The only place that can truly, we can truly be in communion with you, the creator and sustainer of the entire cosmos. You are everywhere, so why would you not be here? You are here, Lord. Here am I. Fill me with the joy of your goodness and release me from the bondage of self, of a smallness that is sometimes incapable of imagining a future with you in it that's big enough to provide for my every need. All you ask is for the greatest gift we could possibly give you in return, the gift of presence, the gift of attention to your presence, which unties every knot that keeps us held down. Lord, renew our hearts, renew our minds, make us like you, invincible, through a life of joy found in your redemptive and empowering love, which you placed in the least likely and most convenient of all places, our very own souls. Above all, Lord, grant us a peace which surpasses all understanding, all changing conditions which always have been, And always will be in flux. You are unfailing. Fill us with the unshakable courage of heart to follow you into the bright, unknown future where your grace, love, and justice wait for us in timeless eternity. Lord, it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.